Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Over the years, the unveiling of Cook County's budget this time of year would touch off hours of debate and wrangling over spending cuts, new programs, or new or higher taxes. But after about a dozen years in office, County Board President Tony Preckwinkle's budget might be among the least dramatic things to discuss with her. I mean, there's no new taxes, fines, or fees. There is a lot to talk about, however, and talk we will. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Tony Preckwinkle, president of the Cook County Board of Commissioners, is the guest this weekend, and we will talk about the county and its budget in this half hour, but there are other issues to talk about, too, and uh, you know the I don't even have to do really an introduction because we've known Tony Preckwinkle for a long time, uh, and uh, not only the Chicago City Council, but also the Cook County Board, so let's just get right into the issues, and among the more immediate what comes to mind are the mass shootings in uh, Lewiston, Maine, or more properly, the aftermath of those. Um, we can almost write a script for how the debate's going to go uh, nationally. There'll be renewed calls for an assault weapons ban uh, and r- tighter red flag laws. Gun rights advocates will say it's too soon after the tragedy to talk, and law-abiding citizens need to be able to protect themselves, and then there'll be a standstill on measures to curb gun violence. Uh, uh, Tony Preckwinkle, do you believe that's the cycle we're going to see, and is it always going to be that way? Uh, Craig, before I was ever elected to office, I served uh, as the chair of the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence's board, so I have a long history of involvement in the effort to have reasonable gun laws. Uh, When I was a teacher, actually my first year as a teacher, I lost one of my students to a uh, a random act of violence. She was uh, on her front porch, and there was a drive-by shooting, and uh, she was one of the bystanders who uh, lost their lives. So um, you know, our country has had a terrible difficulty in uh, making the distinction between um, outright elimination of guns and reasonable gun laws. And um, I've always been in favor of reasonable gun laws in this country. I'm hopeful that in my lifetime I'll uh, see more restrictions on the use, for example, of automatic weapons. I don't see why any, you don't use automatic weapons to hunt. My father was a hunter. We had rifles and shotguns in our house. I 
they're not the same weapons as these, you know, AR-15s. Um, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, how can I say this? Uh, my mother was born the year women got the right to vote. But women had been seeking the right to vote and lobbying for the right to vote for decades prior to that. And then there was an amendment and it was established in the Constitution. So, you know, it's hard to predict when change will come. And sometimes the changes are pretty swift after long incremental um, progress. So I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful, but events like this are just profoundly disturbing. Yeah, I wonder what it will take. Um, I mean, some people's minds change, obviously, in, uh, in Maine. One of the lawmakers there who uh, was a, is a conservative Democrat and had been against any changes in the gun laws is now saying he wants an assault weapons ban. But I wonder what it will take for people to stop and go, all right, we need to do something. Because, I mean, we used to think, we, we thought Sandy Hook in Connecticut when 20 children were killed was the thing. We thought Parkland, Florida when t teenagers were killed is do you see anything that moves people I, I i don't know i mean as i said um those of us who believe in reasonable gun laws just have to keep at it um be persistent and not uh give up in despair um and pass the torch to the next generation if that's what it's required if we don't see the change that we hope for in our own lives well, let's talk about uh, the changes that we are seeing in our own lives when it comes to justice and, and, and the like. Uh, we have now had some time to see how uh, the uh, Illinois law banning uh, cash bail. Pre-trial Fairness Act. Yes, will, would do. Um, what's your assessment of how things are going so far? Uh, well, I think in, in Cook County, you know, there are 102 counties in the state of Illinois, in Cook County, um, Judge Evans, thank you, um, issued an order to his uh, members of the circuit court in 2017 that the default position of a defendant in court should be liberty. Uh, and so there was a reduced reliance on cash bond, an increased reliance, frankly, on electronic monitoring, but um, that led to a dramatic reduction in the number of people in our jail. And after all, the Cook County Jail is a place where people who are accused of crimes are detained, not people who have been convicted of crimes. Once you're convicted of a crime, you basically are sent to the Illinois prison system. So, um, you know, I'm very grateful to Judge Evans and to all of the stakeholders for their good work, basically since 2013, when we've been to get together to talk about how we could improve and um, make criminal justice system in this in this county more fair um, for the work that we've we've done. Um, what we've seen since the Pretrial Fairness Act uh, came into place was a, an even further reduction in the jail population. When I came into office, there was an average daily population in the jail of about eleven thousand people, as a result of the work of all of the stakeholders. So that's the not just the chief judge, but the sheriff, public defender, the state's attorney, the clerk of the court everyone working together. Um, we saw a reduction to about 5,600. And during the pandemic, we got it down to 4,000 because we made an effort, a conscious effort, try to get everybody to the jail we could because the, the jail is a congregate setting and therefore it was a hotspot for the pandemic. Um, and the jail population now is trending down uh, closer to 4,000 from the 5,600 or so that it had been kind of steady state 
for a while. So I'm, I'm very grateful to all of the stakeholders in Cook County for their good work in implementing the Pretrial Fairness Act and their good work on criminal justice reform before that. Uh, have you um, looked at or, or, or seen, read about the uh, way it's happening in other counties? And uh, I know there are some, for example, DuPage County puts out a press release whenever someone is held. Uh, and, and they say, we, we petitioned and the judge granted us to allow it. That's, that's the way it was designed. Uh, but does it seem like it's, it's being accepted in other parts of the state as well and, and going relatively smoothly? Forgive me. But I, I have enough trouble <laughs> trying to pay attention to what goes on in Cook County. God knows what goes on elsewhere. Um, I'm very pleased with the way we've been able to implement the Pretrial Fairness Act here in Cook, and I'll leave good journalists like you to figure out what's going on elsewhere. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let, let's talk about uh, the budget a bit. Um, because, and, uh, you know, the running joke in the, uh, in, among the reporters was, uh, ho-hum, Another another Tony Preckwinkle budget, no new taxes, no fee fines or fees, closing of budget gap that was kind of small. Um, but this was no walk in the park. Well, you know, I just want to express my appreciation to our finance team. You know, for, for 12 and a half years now, we've made tough decisions and made structural changes. Um, and as a result, our financial position is strong. Uh, our pensions are in great shape in comparison to some of our other uh, local governments. Uh, and uh, once again, we presented a budget without any new taxes, fines, or fees. I'm, you know, I'm very proud of the good work that uh, Tanya Anthony and her team and um, all of the, the, the good people who preceded her uh, have done to put the county in this, in this position with a with good bond ratings, with um, punch pension funds funded at about 66% the last time I checked, and on our path to full funding, I think, by 2040. Um, I, am, I am very grateful for their good work. However, a lot of the things that made the way for the county and any local government easier over the past few years was money from Washington. Well, now the uh, the ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan Act money, is coming to an end. What kind of challenges does that present to the county going forward? Well, first of all, I want to express my appreciation to President Biden and Congress for the American Rescue Plan Act resources, ARPA resources. Um, local units of government could use that money uh, for lost revenue, for administering any new programs that they might put in place to help address the economic impact of the pandemic, both on our individual residents and on um, local units of government. So we have spent about 30% uh, of our resources on making up for lost revenue as a result of the economic collapse that followed the pandemic. And about 70% of the money, which in our case is $700 million on programs and initiatives. Now, we were in great financial shape before this influx of federal dollars, and as a result, um, we've been able to devote more than two-thirds of it to actual programming, uh, as opposed, as I said, to making up for lost revenue or investing in our staff so that we can administer the new programs. What we've done with the money, I mean, 
we have uh, this this fall approved the purchase of of two two buildings for um, our our partners, our community-based partners, connections in Evanston and uh, housing forward in Oak Park. So we have permanent housing for people, and the county provided the financing to to buy the buildings, and then we turned it over to our community-based partners to operate and run them. And we're looking for places in the south suburbs where we can do something similar, find affordable transitional housing for people who were previously unhoused. That's important work, and we couldn't do it, frankly, without the additional influx of resources. You've heard some of the other things we've been doing. Um, our, our program, Guaranteed Basic Income Program, which is part of our effort to promote this idea across the country and hopefully build momentum for a federal guaranteed income. You know, I, I always say 60 years ago, Martin Luther King talked about the importance of providing this safety net for all of our residents, uh, a guaranteed basic income. And, and so did the Black Panthers. They, they said guaranteed income or guaranteed employment. So it's not a new idea, but it's gained recent momentum as the result of the good work of Mayor, former Mayor Tubbs of Stockton, California, and who set up a mayor's for guaranteed income. And, and now, along with Holly Mitchell of Los Angeles, we're working to, to have a, a similar effort at the county level, counties for a guaranteed income. But now, something like purchasing buildings and uh, starting up some programs, that's, those are one-time costs. Something like guaranteed income, if the, this pilot program works, is something you want to keep going. Um, what happens when you get to the end of the ARPA money? Well, I gave those two examples because, as you point out, they're, they're quite different. The, the efforts to try to address the needs of the unhoused, you could be seen as one-offs, right? We're purchasing buildings that are now available to the unhoused, and we have community-based partners who are going to run them. Um, in the case of the guaranteed basic income, we've, we've made a pledge that we'll continue this beyond the pilot and figure out the resources to do that. We've talked about, um, frankly, uh, cannabis resources and, and resources from gaming. Mm. As, a, as a source of revenue to support this ongoing work. Are there any programs, I mean, and, and I think the county did this, the city of Chicago did this, we're making most of the things that were funded one-offs, but are there some other kinds of programs that were started besides guaranteed income that you're going to have to look around for that, that were things that you really would like to see keep going? Well, we're, we're spending, we've allocated, rather, $100 million to do violence prevention work. Um, violence prevention, um, including, you know, folks who work in communities, um, street workers, to try to uh, deal with the violence we see, investment in, in at-risk young people, uh, investment in folks who are coming out of the criminal justice system as they attempt to uh, reintegrate. So we're, we're doing a lot of that violence prevention work. We were doing it before. We, we ramped it up with, with American Rescue Plan Act resources. Um, and we'll continue to do it. The only question is at what level when the American Rescue Plan Act resources are exhausted. Mm. Let's talk about uh, some, uh, some other things. Uh, one of them uh, is medical debt relief. Uh, I want to start talking about that. Uh, this is a $12 million program. Can you t tell us a little bit about what that's about? Well, the best thing about it is you don't have to apply. 
<laughs> to be a beneficiary. <laughs> um, th- there was an organization, there is an organization called RIP Medical Debt, and it had worked with philanthropy uh, to eliminate medical debt for folks. And let me just say, medical debt is the, is the principal reason that people declare bankruptcy in this country, as appalling and astonishing as that may be. The principal reason people declare bankruptcy is they can't pay their medical bills. So um, RIP Medical Debt has a uh, plan of action, and they basically make deals with providers, healthcare systems, medical groups, whatever, and um, they agree that the, the agreements are that RIP will buy the medical debt rather than having the entity sell it to collection agencies. And, and historically, hospitals and medical groups have done that for pennies on the dollar. So RIP sort of intervenes in that uh, loop and takes on the medical debt. The, the, the institutions sell the medical debt to RIP instead of collection agencies. RIP um, informs people that their medical debt has been paid and that their credit reports have been cleaned up, and that's it. Um, how does RIP find and choose which people uh, to, to help? Well, they buy the medical debt from, from providers. I think it's 250% of the poverty level. Anyone who's under 250% of the poverty level. Um, and I don't know their algorithm. I, I, can't, I can't explain that. But um, that's the basic uh, threshold. And uh, then they just send you a letter and tell you that uh, your medical debt has been uh, eliminated and they've cleaned up your credit report and, you know, go forth. And, and what, is the, what is the county's expense then in this? $12 million is what we've allocated. But, I mean, what, you, what is that money used for if, if this entity is well, buying RIP, up the debt? Well, RIP has a small administrative fee, but the rest of the money goes to buy the debt. <laughs> You're listening and, to... And, oh, and, 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 and since the, it, the debt is pennies on the dollar, we've been able to wipe out you know, almost $300 million of debt, and we haven't exhausted our money yet. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore. My guest this week is Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, and we're recording this program in her office, actually her new allegedly temporary offices, although if you were in them, you would think this is what permanent offices should look like. So, <laughs> But here we are. Um, another thing that I want to talk about that is happening in the health realm is behavioral health. There's $74 million uh, for, uh, for Cook County Health there. Um, what are the kinds of things that are uh, going on there? Well, first of all, I, I have to, I'm ashamed to admit that um, Cook County Health historically has had a big footprint in the physical health environment. Uh, for 180 years, we've taken anybody who comes to our door, regardless of their race or income or citizenship status or ability to pay, um, and that, that has been a wonderful boon to the people of Cook County. However, we didn't have a very big footprint in behavioral health. And as we talked to the community and our commissioners and the community-based organizations that we worked with about how to spend the ARPA money, what kept coming up in every arena was we need to spend more money on behavioral health. Now, partly that was the result of the fact that the pandemic was so devastating to the mental health of, of many of us depression, anxiety, isolation, all took a terrible toll. Um, But it was also a recognition of the fact that we hadn't as a county, uh, even in good times, 
let alone those bad times, devoted enough resources to behavioral health. So we put aside these resources to build up a behavioral health department within Cook County Health, and we're staffing it up and um, putting, putting uh, behavioral health services in all our clinics. And actually, in addition, we've provided re support to the Housing Authority of Cook County, HAC, so that they can have social workers in each of their developments to support the behavioral health needs of their residents. Are you anticipating any new facilities opening up? I, I, my foggy memory uh, seems to remember that there were some brick and mortar uh, entities uh, for, I believe, the county. Well, the city had behavioral health clinics. And, uh, <laughs> and we know the, and, the history of those closing uh, is, is well, the, the pretty city, well told. The city, unfortunately, for the last couple decades has been withdrawing its support for public health by closing um, physical health facilities, by closing mental health facilities. I remember when I was alderman, I got a call from the head of the Department of Public Health telling me they were close, closing a, an STD, STD clinic, sexually transmitted disease clinic. I mean... Uh, the city has been withdrawing and, and putting more and more of the responsibility on, on the county, and we've picked it up because that's what we do. Mm. Um, I do want to talk about uh, one other uh, division of responsibilities, uh, and that would be in the migrant crisis. Uh, that we know that the city of Chicago has been uh, has been doing pretty much all of the, at least for Illinois, all of the housing. Um, Cook County has been handling health care for the migrants. So first, I want you to talk a little bit about just what the county is doing uh, in this endeavor. And then we can talk about what, what more could be done in any cases. Dr. Um, Bram Raju, who uh, was one of the previous directors of our health and hospital system, um, always used to talk about the importance of what he called herd health, that you can only be as healthy as the people who you work with in your office, the people you ride the train or the bus with to work, the people who serve you in restaurants. That we have to be concerned not just about our individual health, but the health of the larger community. So as, as new arrivals have come to the, to the city of Chicago, and that's where the buses have been dropping them off, uh, we have provided care for them. Um, initial health screenings, vaccinations, immunizations, school physicals for the kids, and then ongoing treatment, of course, for any uh, illnesses that people come presenting with. And then um, ongoing treatment in our, our clinics and our hospitals. So um, one of our clinics has been the focal point of that care. Uh, but once they get their initial care, they can go to any of our, our clinics and, of course, to our two hospitals, Provident and Stroger. Um, you know, I'm proud of the work that we're doing. As I said, we've always taken whoever comes to our door. And before I move on beyond the healthcare portion of this, uh, I understand that there's some news for Cook County Health. Uh, can you bring us up to speed on that? In my usual delicate way, I always say that I've, uh, there have been six leaders of the healthcare system um, in the, my tenure as president of the county board. Um, there were only two of them I thought were really good at the job, unfortunately. One of them was uh, Israel Rocha. Um, Israel came to us in December of 2020. In the first couple of weeks he was on the job, um, the vaccines became available. 
And I remember distinctly one of the first times uh, that <clears throat> we got together after he agreed to take the position was at Stroger Hospital when we were vaccinating uh, health care staff. Um, you know, I'm really grateful to him for his work over the past three years, working with my staff to set up mass vaccination sites, um, his work with uh, federally qualified health centers that were also uh, distributing vaccines. Uh, the work that got done in the pandemic was pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, we talk about essential workers. Um, as you know, my daughter is a nurse. And, uh, you know, she went to work every day during the pandemic, which scared me to death, although I never shared that with her. Um, and I'm just grateful to all of the good people in our healthcare system for the yeoman service over the last three years, and particularly to the leader of that system, Israel Rocha. And, and now he is, he is leaving us. Um, I, I know you can't say uh, anything about where he's going, um, but what happens to leadership at the healthcare system from this point forward? Well, as you know, the, the way in which things work in Cook County is that there's a board, an independent governing board for a health and hospital system. Um, and now that his departure is announced, I presume that they'll begin the process of uh, finding uh, interim leadership. So I look forward to, uh, to their decision in that regard. Uh, I do want to go back to the health care, I mean, the migrant uh, issue. Um, not so much about whether Cook County government should be doing more because it is taking on a major burden. But, I mean, at the moment, as I said at the outset, Chicago is doing the, is doing the housing. And this is a big county. Um, should other parts of the county be stepping up and offering to help or are you hearing that other parts of the county might want to step up and help the buses are dropping people off in the city of chicago and the city of chicago uh, is sheltering and feeding them and the county of cook is providing their medical care the state of illinois allocated 42.5 million dollars in this next budget that is the budget that runs from july 1st of this year to june 30th of next year 42 and a half million dollars uh, to address the needs of new arrivals. Uh, the city of Chicago is paying $35 million a month to care for new arrivals. We're spending a little more than $2 million, and as the buses increase in number, it looks like it's going to be closer to $4 million a month. Um, in my view, this is a sanctuary state. We have to step up as a state and provide re more resources to the city of Chicago to do this work. It would also be helpful if the state provided resources so that other local units of government might be willing to do the same. I know when we have talked to the governor, uh, he says the state is doing what it can. We need more help from the federal government. I think that's true, but I think the state needs to do more as well. Do you think that there is a, is it a lack of, of, of concern at some levels of government other than these two uh, or a lack of will. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure why we're not seeing more. Well, let me just say, I mean, immigration policy is a federal responsibility. So it's really the federal government that should be providing resources. In the absence of federal resources, we need the state to step up and help us more. I mean, but I, I should say that this, is a fed, this should be a federal responsibility. Um, 
you know, I think President Biden is in a tough place because whatever he does for new arrivals, he'll be criticized for in terms of, you know, not helping our own uh, citizens and residents. You know, we have 12 million undocumented people who uh, have been in this country many for years uh, without a path forward to citizenship. So this is a complicated issue. Um, I hope that after his reelection, he will devote the resources that we all need to address the challenge. Do you believe that if the uh, state government uh, or the federal government made more money available for other municipalities besides Chicago and, and the border cities, which are doing the processing and sending them here, that other communities would be willing to reach out? I think so, although, you know, there was an application from Joliet that was apparently given to them as an incentive to do something, and then there wasn't consensus politically to accept the money, and it was sent back. So, you know, it's hard to know. Hmm. Uh, does, that, does that disturb you that something like that can happen, that a community could say, hey, let's do it, and then a backlash, a political backlash, prevents it? Well, I'm... You know, we've we've had some real challenges in terms of where shelters would be located or where um, encampments would be located in the city of Chicago. So I'm not going to throw stones at anybody else. But you know, if if the attitude where we're all in this together and we got to find a solution together, that would be helpful. Well, I'm going to have to let that be the final word on this, and I thank you very much. That is Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. Thank you for your hospitality and for uh, spending the time with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. There's a link on the homepage. You can also find our podcast on odyssey.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 105.9 WBBM. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 